recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 28th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight I plan on presenting Acts chapter 7. I had... um originally planned on Acts chapter 7 and 8 tonight, but I had to change my mind when I wrote three pages on one phrase towards the end of Act 7 and decided that 11 pages of notes was plenty for a program. I better stop there. Before I begin, however, I'd like to have a short discussion concerning the clowns of historical inquiry. You know, it seems that every other person with, an agent, with a website has an, an agenda and will say or do anything to promote the agenda, regardless of the truth. Clowning with history is basically, in, in my purview, concocting events which had never been discussed contemporarily to the time period you have in mind, which you have not actually determined from any um, documents explicitly, and then picking and choosing passages from diverse sources, taking them out of context to create a narrative of your own. That's clowning with history. The clown's approach is to run with a few passages in order to support an agenda, twisting out of context whatever else he can find to suit his purpose. The good historian's approach is to understand all the passages in the context of as many contemporary sources as he can possibly obtain. The clown historian's approach is to claim that something happened or that something did not happen, regardless of the amount of contemporary documentation which refutes his claim, and then go find a couple of passages here and there which he feels supports his claim. I'll give an example. I've been arguing with a certain individual for the last week or so, on and off, on blogs and, and things like that. And this individual, in order to support a certain position he has, presented somebody else, a, a fellow worker of mine, with something called the contract between the king and the 13 United States. And he used this contract to purport that King George, the King of England, was financing both sides of the Revolutionary War. There were two of these contracts. One of them was signed in 1782, the other in 1783. They're titled Contract Between the King and the 13 United States of America, signed at Versailles. They don't have which king in the title, but reading the actual contract, the, the monetary unit, the, the, the basis of the contract being a loan of money by the king to the, the, the fledgling United States, both contracts clearly show that it's the king of France who is the contractor, the king mentioned in the title of the contracts. These contracts are available at the Avalon Project at Yale University, the text version of them. 
Well, when confronted with this inconvenient fact, this person did some more investigating, I guess, and, and came up with the brilliant idea that this couldn't have been the King of France. This had to be the King of England because the King of England used as a title King of Ireland, England, and France. But simply because the King of England used that as a title doesn't make it true. The Kings of England were claiming to be the Kings of France for over 500 years in the medieval period. I don't know if they still claim as much. But it was never true. It, it was true of small parts of France that they managed to win in battle during the Hundred Years' War and the many other wars that England and France had. However, it was never really true. If it was true, then after Bastille Day, it would have been King George's head that rolled at the guillotine. Instead, it was the head of Louis XVI. Louis XVI, the real king of France, who controlled all of France at the time of the Revolution, who controlled Paris, which is mentioned in the contracts. Louis XVI was the signatory to these contracts between the king of France and the 13 United States of North America. Don't use the title of the king of England to invent your own or, or to support your own silly contentions concerning history because you will end up looking like a fool, an absolute In fact, you already look like a damned fool. And you know who I'm talking about. The person in question certainly knows who I'm talking about. There is a, a, a plethora of evidence in the writings of the people involved. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and others of their contemporaries, which proved beyond doubt that these contracts were between Louis XVI and the American the United States of North America. It, it's it's the, the, the clown historian who draws conclusions about history not even realizing what lies out there in, in, in contemporary documentation. He reads a passage or two and makes up his own narrative because it fits an agenda without even realizing how many documents refute him. And then he sticks to his guns and digs himself into a deeper hole when he's confronted with some of that evidence. The clown historian's approach is to claim that something happened or that something did not happen, regardless of the amount of contemporary documentations which refutes his claim. Usually the clown historian is even ignorant of that documentation, ignorant of the facts. He just finds two or three facts that support his agenda, and he runs with them, ignorant of everything that refutes him, ignorant of how much real documentation is out there. I've seen it happen again and again. You know, there's a few topics that I talk about because I'm very well read in them, or at least I think I am, and I could list all the books that I've read on those topics. My papers on Christagenia.org are replete with citations. I've actually read every book that I've ever cited at Christagenia from cover to cover. I'm not bragging. It's not a whole lot of books. It's only probably a couple hundred books. But I've read them. I've read them because I'm focused on certain topics. Topics I'm not focused on, 
I don't discuss. People ask me all the time, what do you think about Abraham Lincoln? I really don't have a conclusion. I was talking about that with Melissa the other day. She was asking me if, if I thought he was a Melungeon. A lot of people think that. I don't have an opinion. I don't have a, an opinion because we all know what we know about Abraham Lincoln that we've read in the school books. We've all read things here and there throughout our lives about an individual. I've never made my mind up with certainty about Abraham Lincoln and, and several aspects of his presidency and several traits of his character and his person because I simply haven't read contemporary documentary papers and, and things that would give me a sure foundation and certain proof upon which I can base the opinions that I formulate drawn from the conclusions which have been founded upon the things that I would read. I would have to go into the libraries and, and dig out as many things that I could find from the period of the 1850s, 1860s to, to about Abraham Lincoln so that I could read that and, and form a solid foundation that I could base conclusions and opinions on. Well, I've done that reading in, in, um, in, in Hebrew apocryphal and biblical literature, so, so I have a lot of opinions that I can formulate and, and express. I've done that reading what, with um, ancient Greek and Roman history, so I have a lot of opinions that I could formulate and, and, and express. I haven't done that reading with Abraham Lincoln. I'm using him as an example. I could use a hundred other or a thousand other examples, things that I don't comment on because I haven't read about them. When people ask me about them, I say, I don't know. I don't have to choose a, a, a conclusion or, or an, a prevailing opinion like people choose a favorite sports team. I could just leave something on the back burner and say, I don't know, maybe someday I'll get to do the reading that, that'll lead me to formulate an, an informed opinion. I don't want to form an opinion until I can do that. If you want to formulate opinions, reading a couple of contracts, a couple of treaties, a couple of um, articles off the Internet, if you want to form informed opinions about any time period of history, doing that is not enough. Read the contemporary writings from the people involved. That is the first step into gaining a, a grasp on what really happened. Another example is that this person extolled the virtues of the Articles of Confederation while he demeaned the Constitution. And he did that on the basis that there was a central bank, a privately owned central bank, under the Constitution. The truth is, and this person was totally ignorant of it, and still has not addressed this fact when I confronted him, the truth is that under the Articles of Confederation, there was a privately owned central bank for 10 years. So how could you discredit the Constitution on the basis that there was a privately owned central bank? You can't. Not while you're extolling the virtues of the Articles of Confederation, which had that same situation. This person was obviously totally ignorant of that. He ran his mouth and never read contemporary documentary 
writings and, and period articles which would really inform him of what was going on. The truth is that both the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution setting the bounds of the unions which they created left the banking question to the people how they were going to conduct their banking. They didn't bind, the, the U.S. Constitution doesn't bind the government to any particular banking system. And it's very wise that it did that. The Articles of Confederation, likewise. We have, an, an, we have plenty of clowns out there on the Internet. We don't need clowns in Christian identity. I'm not going to countenance clowns that have agendas. I'm tired of clowns with agendas trying to sell me on their agendas or confronting me with their agendas. When they're so easily disproven, and the problem is that usually these clowns, they haven't done enough reading to realize the implications of the facts that you're using to refute them. That's what's really sickening. We don't need clowns in Christian identity. I'm not going to countenance it. And I'm not going to back down even when I consider those people to be my friends. And in this instance, I do consider this one individual that I've been debating with to be my friend, but he's obstinate, he digs himself in, and he makes himself look ten times worse than he did at the first when he first ran his mouth about something he doesn't know anything about. So that's the end of my, my, my um, preliminary discussion tonight. Real histor well, not quite. I got a few more remarks. Real historians do not start with a conspiracy and create a narrative. Real historians sometimes find a conspiracy within the narrative, and that's fine, and that's good, and that's good investigative research. But that, too, must be supported with at least something which resembles explicit documentary evidence along with sufficient circumstantial evidence which soundly supports the claims. If the documents and the circumstances do not reveal the conspiracy, the historian should not invent it, invent it regardless. Then he becomes a novelist. We don't need to be novelists. We're fighting a war. We don't need to be discredited with stupid conclusions based on one or two things that we think we can prove because, well, we read one or two things that happened to, to um, lead us to believe that perhaps that was possible. We have to go do the rest of the reading. We have to read all of the things concerning that topic from the period and then formulate our conclusion. We read the narrative first, and then we draw our conclusions. We don't do it the opposite way around. We don't draw conclusions and then go pick and choose with, with Internet web searches and find things that support our conclusions and not read everything else involved in the literature, from the literature of the period. That's ridiculous. That, that's bad investigative research. It's bad research. It's bad scholarship. It, it's bad everything. Now that's the end of my preliminary discussion. The consequences are the consequences. I said long ago that I would rather sit here alone. 
I'll sit here alone and preach to myself if I believe I'm telling the truth. I don't care how many people want to listen to me. If they all left, as long as I believe I'm telling the truth, I'll still be here. It's the truth that's important and not popularity. The truth is more important than friendship. Truth and obedience to God should come first. Everything else is secondary. The book of Acts, chapter 7. As it is recorded in Acts chapter 7, before his stoning, the martyr Stephen offered an apology, an apology being a defense in its original meaning, of his Christian beliefs, where he attempts to demonstrate to the council and to the people that the hope of Israel rests upon the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which were perpetuated and transmitted through Moses to the children of Israel, and which had nothing to do with the temple or the works of the hands of man, but rather had everything to do with kinship, brotherhood, and the counsel of God, which men have perpetually rejected. Since the authority of the high priests was connected to the institution of the temple, and the allegiance of the people had long been to that institution, rather than to the word of God, Stephen was slain for his profession of the Christian message, which was unpopular with the traditionalists of his time, and which was hated most of all by the Canaanite, Edomite aliens among the chief of, of the people of the city. In the last segment of the series, we began our presentation of Stephen's apology by discussing certain of the events of the scriptures, which he cites from a historical viewpoint. Among other things, we discussed the dating of the Exodus and the reckoning of the years of Israel's captivity in Egypt. Here we will continue our discussion from where we left off last week at Acts chapter 7, verse 23. And the call of Moses is still Stephen's topic. And this 40 years' time were completed by him. He put up in his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And seeing one being done wrong, he defended him and made an avenging for him being subdued, smiting the Egyptian. Seeing one of the, his brethren, the children of Israel, being done wrong, he defended him. Moses was raised in the household of the Pharaoh and must have had all of the privileges of a member of the royal family. Yet he risked his enjoyment of these worldly luxuries for the benefit of defending a lowly man, a slave. The Hebrews were slaves. Because that lowly man was one of his own tribesmen. For this, Moses had been selected by Yahweh as the man who would lead his people out of Egypt. Ostensibly, this is the point that Stephen is making and which he had hoped that his own contemporaries would learn from by the example which he provides, that Moses, regardless of his high station, acted contrarily 
to his own interests and stood against the institutions of his own time in favor of those of his own race. And Moses was therefore employed by Yahweh God as his instrument of their redemption from Egypt. In that manner, Moses was a type for Christ. Likewise, Christ was rejected by many of his own kinsmen, men who would not risk their stations to stand for what was right, as we see in John 12:42. But many of the Pharisees believed on him but wouldn't profess it because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. And therefore Christ was slain. But it was he who Moses and the prophets foretold would come. And it was he and no longer Moses who was now the instrument of Israel's redemption. They are the points, I believe, that Stephen is trying to make. Paul of Tarsus in Hebrews chapter 11 says of Moses in part, By faith Moses, being born, was hid three months by his fathers because they saw the handsome child and did not fear the ordinance of the king to kill all the male children. By faith Moses, becoming full-grown, refused to be called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of sin. Having esteemed the reproach of the anointed, not Christ. It's not Christ who is being reproached in the deserts in Egypt. It's the anointed. It's the people, the chosen people of Christ, the children of Israel. Having esteemed the reproach of the anointed, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Since he had regard for the reward, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the temper of the king, again referring to Pharaoh. Since seeing the invisible, he persevered. One aspect of the life of Moses that is not related in the book of Exodus is that he must have been a very well-educated man, having been raised as the son of the princess, and certainly educated for a role in the administration of the kingdom a role which there is apocryphal literature that informs us that he fulfilled until he killed the Egyptian. The Egyptian whom Moses killed was almost certainly another Adamic white man. While Egypt had imported some black aliens, which they used as slaves, and while there is evidence that certain of the pharaohs, especially in this time, Tutmosis III, also had Nubian concubines, and there was frequent intercourse with the Nubians at this time, Egypt was still both originally and primarily a white nation up until the Nubian invasions of a much later period had occurred and had changed its nature permanently. Yet even though the Egyptian was white, ostensibly, Moses was not ever labeled as a murderer except by those who despised him However, if Moses had not defended his brother, then he may have been considered a murderer. For the Apostle John says in his first epistle that whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. 1 John 3.15 Sadly, 
many Israelites, even in identity Christianity, still do not understand this. And instead, they accept the doctrines and the laws of men. The government can't declare you a murderer in the eyes of God. Verse 25. And he expected the brethren to understand that Yahweh, through his hand, gives deliverance to them. But they did not understand. Sound familiar? Some of the manuscripts have his brethren rather than the brethren. In this day, identity Christians wonder when our own people who are locked in the paradigms of this world will awaken to the fact that they are once again in bondage and that their own attitudes concerning race and righteousness have been taught to them by the very people who hold them in that bondage, the international Jews. The concept of political correctness which holds sway over their minds is an invention of the Jewish masters who rule over them. That they may retain that rule without difficulty. Here we see that an Israelite in bondage would despise another Israelite who had delivered him rather than be grateful for any relief he was granted from his oppressor. Our people are a little different today. This is our example. And it's just as fitting now. Verse 26. Then the next day, he, meaning Moses, appeared to those who were fighting, and he reconciled them in peace, saying, Men, you are brothers. For what reason do you wrong one another? But he doing wrong, and I know this reading is a little clumsy. There's a reason for it, which I will explain. But he doing wrong to he near to him, rejected him, saying, Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Do you not desire to kill me in the manner that you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Verses 27 and 28 here, quote from Exodus 2.14. As it is today, so it was then also, that the righteousness of the children of Israel was after the reckoning of man rather than of God. And this man was more concerned for even his dead oppressor than he was for the men of his own race. He was comfortable in his position as a slave. He didn't want it threatened. That describes most of our people today. They're slaves and they don't know it but they're comfortable in their positions. You try to get them to step out of it, and they become, very quickly and easily, they become vehemently opposed to you. It's incredible, the human mindset. However, these people rejecting him, Moses would flee Egypt. And because Moses fled Egypt, it would be another 40 years before he fulfilled his mission. Our people have much the same attitude today. We're because the churches teach them lies. Because the churches teach them lies, when they are informed of their sins, they respond. Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? 
It's understandable that the phrase, but he doing wrong, meaning the Israelite aggressor, to he near to him, meaning the Israelite being fought with by his kinsmen, rejecting him, meaning the admonishment of Moses. It's understandable that that phrase is a little difficult to read, and it would be easier to read if it were rendered, but he doing wrong to his neighbor rejected him. The most common Greek word translated as neighbor in the King James Version of the Bible is the adverb placion, the neuter form of the noun, well, of the adjective placios, which literally means near or close to. The word placios itself is a derivative of another word, an adverb pelos, which also means near, hard by, or close. And either of these three words, any of these three words, used with the definite article as a substantive, makes it a noun, means one who is near, or as the King James has it, a neighbor. But by themselves, these words do not readily distinguish between nearness in relationship or nearness in geographical proximity, which is why I never use the term neighbor in my translations because of the way that the English word neighbor is perceived in modern times, being understood only in a geographical sense. However, the corresponding Hebrew word from which these words were often translated in the Septuagint certainly does bear a distinction. And so does the context of Scripture on occasions where this word placion is found. First, in secular Greek, there are other words used by authors contemporary to the New Testament period, and which also appear in the New Testament, which are often translated as neighbor. The word gaiton, Strong's number 1069, is explicitly one of the same land. And it's found in Luke chapters 14 and 15 twice, and John chapter 9, verse 8. The word perioikos, Strong's number 4040, which simply means dwelling around. In the plural, koi perioikoi, the people who dwell around us, those who dwell around us, literally means neighbors. It's found in Luke chapter 1. These words have an explicit geographical meaning but placeon does not. It simply means near or close. It can surely be demonstrated from historical sources such as Strabo that in Palestine and throughout the Oikumene, throughout the Greco-Roman world, one's neighbor was most often and was expected to be of one's own tribe. That this is the true meaning of the word placeon in the New Testament is evident in other ways besides the use of those other words, gaiton or perioikos, where it was appropriate. Here in Acts 7.27, an account of the events recorded in Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, one Israelite is referred to as the placeon 
or the neighbor, as the King James Version has it, in relation to another Israelite, but certainly not in reference to the dead Egyptian. But Moses, as is fully evident in the Exodus account, not really knowing these people, not having seen them in a long time, which the account infers, Moses could not have known that these two men lived in close proximity to one another, as we currently understand the meaning of the term neighbor. Moses could only have known that the men had a tribal relationship. Now, some people may think that's conjectural, but it's surely the circumstance, and therefore it must be considered. In Matthew 5, verse 43, Yahshua Christ is credited with having said the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That word neighbor is the same word, placeion. Tone placeion. Placeion with the article, making it a noun. What meaning would that saying have if one's enemy, as often is the case, lived in a house next door? It would be ridiculous the way we understand that word neighbor. So therefore, it should be evident that complacion is one near to you, one near to another, but not necessarily in a geographical sense. Rather, one near in relationship is how the word should be understood in the Bible. The Hebrew word, found in the original text of the command in the Old Testament, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, found in Leviticus 19.18. That Hebrew word is Strong's number 7453, Reah. A word said to be derived from Strong's number 7462, which I would pronounce the same way, although it's spelled a little differently, Reah. Number 7453, that word used for neighbor and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is an associate as strong defines the word. Strong lists the King James Version, the various King James Version translations of the word as brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, lover, or neighbor. And so it should it should certainly be evident that Tonplacion, with all of those King James translations, is not simply one who lives nearby. But in order to understand it, we should look at the root word, 7462. Strong's defines that word as a primitive root, meaning to tend a flock, to pasture it, and intransitively to graze. By extension, it means to associate with as a friend, according to Strong. But it's apparent, it should be apparent, that if one is a member of the flock, then one's placeion, or neighbor, can only be a fellow sheep. If one is a member of your flock, he is your neighbor. If one is not of your flock, he cannot ever be your neighbor. 
a wolf who moves into the sheepfold can never be a sheep. And therefore, he can never be a neighbor. Men do not gather grapes from thorns nor figs from thistles. We cannot imagine the word of God to be insisting that a wolf can be a neighbor to a sheep. The Old Testament, I'm sure, chose that word very purposely. The word of God in the Old Testament. Your neighbor is your fellow flock member. Acts chapter 7, verse 29. And Moses fled upon this word and became a sojourner in the land of Madiam, M-A-D-I-A-M, where he had begotten two sons. In the King James Version, the name is Midian here. And it's always Midian, number 4080, in the Old Testament, in the English of the Old Testament. But as the Greek texts have it here at Acts 7.29, the corresponding Greek of the Septuagint usually has Madiam, M-A-D-I-A-M, according to the Hatch and Redpath concordance to the Septuagint. Which also explains that Josephus, the historian, has Madian with an N on several occasions. This reading here, Madium, M-A-D-I-A-M, is consistent in all of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And this spelling is that most often found in the Septuagint. Although on occasions the word appears with an N at the end there also but only in the Vaticanist manuscript of the Septuagint employed by Brenton. An examination of this word as it appears in the New Testament and the Septuagint would show that Madium is the correct Old Testament reading, that's fully evident, and that the Septuagint and not a Hebrew text was the Old Testament text which was employed by the compiler of the book of Acts. Of course, there are many other ways to demonstrate that in the book of Acts. Most of the quotes, almost all of the quotes, even here in Stephen's discourse, where quotes from the Old Testament are, are, are made, the Greek is almost word for word. I'd say it's by 95%. matching what the, what the Septuagint text reads. It's very high percentage. The differences in these words indicates another thing. It indicates that the Hebrew, not having any vowels as we know vowels, was interpreted differently by the Septuagint translators and by Josephus and by the New Testament writers than it is by the Masoretic text authors and by the modern Jews. Hebrew is not Hebrew anymore. We gain a lot of insight into that when we compare the Hebrew words as they're published today in lexicons, when we compare them with the way they were translated in, in the Septuagint, transliterated in the Septuagint, and we can understand that Hebrew is not Hebrew anymore. And it, it's the, the language that the Jews speak, 
may hardly resemble it in a lot of aspects. Now, to discuss the wife of Moses, because this passage says that Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Madium, where he had begotten two sons. The common perception in the mainstream churches is that Moses had married a negress. Because in one verse in the book of Numbers, it says that his wife came from Ethiopia. And this is based upon a childishly ignorant view of Scripture and history. Simply because there is a land called Ethiopia today, over 3,500 years later, which happens to be inhabited by Negroes. This verse is found in Numbers 12, verse 1, where it says, And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. And that word, Ethiopian, in this passage, on both occasions, is from Strong's number 3571. It's from the Hebrew word, which is properly Cushite, a person of Cush. Yet, without getting into the history of Ethiopia, which we probably shall do in small part at the end of Acts chapter 8 when we present it here, we will state that it is clear through the lens of the New Testament, esteeming the words of Stephen here in Acts chapter 7, that these early Christians, who were indeed Hebrews, understood that Moses' wife came from the regions east of the land of Canaan, where the land of Madium, or if you read the King James Version, the land of Midian, was located. From Genesis chapter 25, which explains the origin of Midian, Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bare him Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dadan. And the sons of Dadan were Ashurim, and Letushim, and Lemumim, or Leumim. And the sons of Midian Ephah and Epher, and Hanak, and Abidah, and Eldah, all these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. But under the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, which ostensibly includes Keturah, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son, while he yet lived, meaning while Abraham yet lived, eastward into the east country. So Midian was therefore a son of Abraham by Keturah. And Abraham sent him along with his brethren eastward into the east country. Exodus chapter 2 tells us precisely where Moses fled to and where he obtained his wife. Less than 400 years after Abraham sent his son Midian off to the east country. From verse 15. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, meaning Moses' killing of the Egyptian, he sought to slay Moses. 
But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, Ruel is called Jethro in various places, and Raguel in one other place, probably a scribal error. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you are come so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian, they would have recognized Moses as an Egyptian, possibly by the way he spoke, definitely by his dress. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter, the daughter of a priest of Midian, the son of Abraham. It is clear from Acts 7 and Numbers 10 that Zipporah was a Midianite from the land of Midian, east of Palestine, east of the land of Canaan. We also see in Genesis chapter 37 that it was Midianites who rescued Joseph from the pit and sold him into slavery, whereby he ended up in Egypt. By this account, we see that Midianites commonly traversed the land of Canaan. Numbers chapter 10, from verse, from verse 29. And Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Raguel, the Midianite. That is the Ruel of the passage we just read. Moses' father-in-law. We are journeying unto the place of which Yahweh said, I will give it to you. Come thou with us, and we will do thee good. For Yahweh has spoken good concerning Israel. Here in Numbers chapter 10, 29, we see Raguel is the same as the Manruel, as the name appears in Exodus 2.18. He's perceived to be a pious man, and he's also described as the priest of Midian. And the Midianites were children of Abraham through the concubine Keturah. It is very clear throughout the entire biblical narrative from Genesis through the books of Judges, Kings, and Chronicles that the land of Midian was to the east of Palestine and not very far from it because the children of Israel had recorded their interactions with the Midianites in those very regions all throughout the scriptures. We cannot simply assume, however, that the statement in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, which calls Zipporah an Ethiopian, is wrong. We can't assume that. It's not wrong. Nor can we assume 
that it necessarily contradicts all of these other scriptures. And in fact, it can be demonstrated that it does not contradict all of these other scriptures. Rather, since the scripture cannot fail, we must be able to explain from a historical perspective just how Zipporah may have been considered an Ethiopian, while all those other scriptures that explain that she was a Midianite are certainly also valid. Now the bad historian, the clown historian's approach, would be to run with one passage and interpret it to one's own convenience in order to support a particular agenda. The good historian's approach would be to seek to understand all the passages in their original context so that they may be reconciled properly. In the earliest Greek records, there were two lands called Ethiopia. One was far to the south of Egypt. And while it was mentioned by the earliest Greeks, it was scarcely known to most of the ancient Greeks. The other was the Ethiopia of the East, as Herodotus called it. And it was east of Syria and the Euphrates River. One famous ancient character who came from there was Memnon, Memnon the Ethiopian, as he's called by the epic poets, by Homer and by Hesiod, who was credited with having fought as an ally of the Trojans in the famous Trojan War, and also with having been the legendary founder of Susa, the great city in Persia, which was later the capital city of the Persians. If Memnon founded Susa, we have an idea of where he came from. Historical inspection would lead one to realize that this Ethiopia of the East must have been a part of that entity which modern academics call the First Babylonian Empire. The Ethiopia of the South was called Cush by the Hebrews, and an inspection of the early scriptures tells us that the Hebrew name Cush first appears in Genesis relating to the Gahan River, which is said to compass the whole land of Ethiopia, Genesis 2.13. Now four rivers are discussed there. The four rivers which sprang from the original location of the Garden of Eden. And that may have been a very large location. We're not told how big it was, right? Those four rivers, not all of them may be identifiable today, but two others are certainly identifiable. The Hidekel, which is believed to be the Tigris, since the account says, remember the account was written, written much later than the events which it describes, so some things are, are, are out of time. The account says of the Hidekel River that it goes toward the east of Assyria. Assyria existed when Moses wrote the account. So the Hidekel River is probably identified with the Tigris properly. And the Euphrates, which the Hebrews called the Pereth throughout all of Scripture. And Pereth is the name translated Euphrates in Genesis chapter 2. 
I would make the conjecture that Euphrates, the Phrates part of the word, probably came from that word, Ferath. The Masoretes screwing that one up too. Therefore, it's fully evident that the Hebrews had a land which they called Cush in the east because those rivers were in the east from the land of Canaan. At least they were in the east at one time before the flood, as Genesis chapter 2 describes. And the Gahan River encompassed the whole land of Cush, or Ethiopia in the translation. So there was definitely, to the Hebrews, a Cush to the south of Egypt and a Cush in the east. Correspondingly, the Greeks had an Ethiopia to the south of Egypt and an Ethiopia of the east, which is what Herodotus, the historian, calls it explicitly writing circa 430 B.C. Therefore, it only makes sense that the Hebrew land the Hebrews considered Cush must be the empire of Nimrod in Mesopotamia. Since Nimrod was a son of Cush, Genesis 10, verse 8. The empire of Nimrod was certainly the first Babylonian empire, and its borders stretched to the land of Canaan where much of the land of Canaan itself was under the control of Egypt at this time. Therefore, the land of Midian at the time of Moses would be a part of that empire, that land of Cush. And therefore, Moses' wife, Zipporah, could, by geography, be called a Cushite or an Ethiopian, an Ethiopian of the East, as well as a Midianite. Midianite being her actual tribe, designating her race. She was certainly not a negress, not by any means. Acts chapter 7, verse 30. And completing 40 years, a messenger appeared to him in the desert at Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Then Moses, seeing it, wondered at the spectacle. And upon his going forth to observe it, there came a voice from Yahweh. The Codex Alexandrinus wants the words translated as the spectacle. It is evident that Stephen accepted the Old Testament chronology, that Moses was near 40 years of age when he slew the Egyptian, and that he was near 80 years of age when he was called by Yahweh at the burning bush. The Codex Beze and the majority text have a messenger of God or an angel of God appeared to him in the desert. The phrase at Mount Sinai, it is, as it appears here in the text, is literally at the mountain Sinai in the Greek throughout the chapter. We took the liberty of writing at Mount Sinai. Verse 32 <coughs> Excuse me. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. And Isaac, 
and Jacob. And being in trembling, or literally and becoming trembling, Moses dared not observe it. Then Yahweh said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place upon which you stand is holy ground. The Codex Beze and the majority text have, more explicitly, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. The text here follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimisiri. These verses, 32 and 33, contain quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, in the reverse order from the original. Verse 34. Seeing that I have seen the mistreatment of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their moaning, that I have come down to set them free, and now come, I shall send you into Egypt. In this text of verse 34, Stephen paraphrased Exodus chapters 3, chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and 10. This is Moses, whom they refused, saying, who appointed you ruler and judge? Some codexes insert the words over us at the end of the sentence. Stephen is again quoting Exodus 2.14 and illustrating that just as many Israelites in Judea had rejected Christ, many Israelites had also initially rejected Moses. And Stephen is making the point that Moses was indeed appointed by God. And he will make the point in this chapter that that was also true of Christ. That's the analogy Stephen is using. He's using Moses as a type for Christ. Him, Yahweh sent as ruler and redeemer by the hand of a messenger which appeared to him in a bush. He led them out, making wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the desert, 40 years. This Greek word, translated redeemer in the Christogenian New Testament, the word is lutrotes. It only appears here in the New Testament. It is a ransomer or a redeemer, according to Liddell and Scott. It comes from a verb, lutra, lutra. These Greek verbs get me the endings. There's a short O and a long O. I have a real problem figuring out how to pronounce them. I'll call it lutro, which means to release a receipt, to release on receipt of ransom, to hold to ransom, passive to be ransomed. Now, the King James Version translated it simply as deliverer. But it's redeemer. Micah chapter 6, verse 4, the word of Yahweh. For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants. And I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In Micah chapter 6, which we just read, several times in Deuteronomy, and once again in 1 Chronicles 17.21, Yahweh God takes credit for being the redeemer of Israel from Egypt. 
Yet here's Stephen making an analogy of the mission of Moses as a type for Christ, makes no offense in calling Moses the redeemer of Israel in this instance, using this Greek word, lutrotes, as Moses certainly fulfilled the earthly office in that capacity. Evidently, the King James translators seem to have been offended by this analogy, and therefore they did not translate the word according to its literal meaning. They wrote deliverer. Verse 37, this is Moses who said to the sons of Israel, Yahweh shall raise up a prophet for you from among your brethren, even as me. The codex is Ephraimi, Siri, and Bezay. Insert at the end of this passage the words, him you shall hear, for which we may refer to the source text of the quoted Deuteronomy 18.15. Peter also cited this passage in reference to Christ in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. This may actually be interpreted as a dual prophecy, pointing both to Joshua, the son of Nun, and to Joshua Christ. However, Joshua, the son of Nun, had already been engaged as a leader subordinate to Moses as early as Exodus chapter 17, where he was first named. Fittingly, Moses' earthly successor was named Joshua, the anglicized version of the Hebrew for Yahshua. And Moses' spiritual successor had the same name, Yahshua Christ. If we use the, the name of Moses on a spiritual level, to represent the law, which it often does in Scripture, even by the words of Christ. Moses is read every Sunday, every Sabbath, I'm sorry. As Moses was a type for Christ in some respects, which Stephen illustrates here, Joshua also was a type for Christ in other respects. In Exodus chapter 23, we see a prophecy which immediately concerned Joshua, the son of Nun. Clifton Emmeheiser pointed this out to me a couple years ago. Behold, I sent an angel or a messenger before thee to keep thee in a way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So Moses' earthly successor had the name of Yahweh, where Yahweh says, for my name is in him. Moses' earthly successor did not pardon the iniquities of Israel. However, Moses' spiritual successor, Yahweh himself incarnate as Yahshua Christ, He bore the same name as Joshua, and his purpose was to pardon the transgressions of Israel. Verse 38. This is he, referring to Moses, 
who had been among the assembly in the desert with the messenger, or with the angel, speaking to him and to our fathers at Mount Sinai, who received the living oracles to give to you. Most of the manuscripts have to give to us. The text here agrees with the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the oldest of the manuscripts in question. Verse 39, to whom our fathers did not wish to be obedient, but rejected and turned in their hearts to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods which shall go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we know not what happened to him. In verse 40, Stephen quotes Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, and a text which is also repeated in 23, verse 23 of that chapter, that the children of Israel turned in their hearts to Egypt reflects the origin of the bull worship cult, the calves, the cult of the golden calves was part of the bull worship cult, which was also found in the Mediterranean at an early time, especially on Crete, which was most famous for it. The cult of Apis, the bull god of Memphis, seems to be as old as Egyptian society itself. Once the ten tribes split from Judah, Jeroboam I once again instituted such a cult in Israel and set up golden calves. Verse 41, And they made a calf in those days and conducted a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Then Yahweh turned, And gave them over to serve the hosts of the heaven, just as it is written in the book of the prophets. Have you offered to me victims and sacrifices 40 years in the desert, house of Israel? And you had taken up the habitation of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you have made to worship them, and I shall move you beyond Babylon. There's a lot of things to discuss here. Here Stephen is quoting from Amos, chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Rather than Babylon, however, both the King James Version and, apparently, all of the extant manuscripts of the Septuagint have Damascus instead. I shall move you beyond Damascus. All of the extant ancient New Testament manuscripts have Babylon at Acts 743. The difference is unexplainable. The Greek word stratia, which in the plural is hosts here, is an army, a host, a company, a band, according to Liddell and Scott. The hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven, the company of heaven, the band of heaven. The Greek word skene is literally a tent, and usually it is rendered as tabernacle in the King James Version. Here and in verse 44 of this chapter in the Christogenian New Testament, it's habitation. The NA 27, the Novum Testamentum Grecae 27th edition, 
Following the Codex Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraim, Siri, and the majority text has your God, the star of your God, in verse 43, where the text here agrees with the Codices Vaticanus and Beze. Concerning the name Rampha, the Codex Alexandrinus has Raphan, R-A-I-P-H-A-N, which is what the Septuagint reads in Amos 5.26. The Codex Ephraimi Siri has Rephan, R-E-P-H-A-N. The Codex Bezai, Remphan. The, codices, the, the Codex Vaticanus is what the Christogenian New Testament is following here. Rampha. The Codex Sinaiticus nearly agrees, adding an N, Ramphan. So there are five different spellings of this name among the manuscripts. The King James Version has Remphan following the Codex Beze. Whereas the manuscripts of the majority text are divided, some even having other spellings besides those which are mentioned here. The Hebrew of Amos 5.26, rather than Ramphah or Remphan, has Kiyun. It's spelled in English C-H-I-U-N in the King James Version. While I did not attempt to identify Kiyun in my recent presentation of the prophecy of Amos, I did state, and I quote, the Hebrew Kiyun, Strong's Hebrew Dictionary number 3594, is simply a statue or a pillar. The word comes from a verb which means to stand erect. There are some who would connect this Kiyun to a certain pagan Babylonian deity, Kayawanu which is said to have been the Babylonian name for the planet Saturn. So we see the Babylonians identify the planets as deities. That's going to be important in a minute. Furthermore, there is no reason to identify this star of Rampha or Remphan with the Jewish so-called star of David. A lot of people like to do that. There's no other evidence that it could be identified. In reality, the Star of David has, of course, absolutely no connection to David. There were many instances in the ancient world, in the pagan religions, where star symbols were used. Stephen says in reference to those who disobeyed Moses that Yahweh turned and gave them over to serve the hosts of heaven. While it is clear in many scriptures that the hosts of heaven were indeed represented by the sun, moon, and stars. There is more to worshiping and serving the hosts of heaven than the mere worship or exonerate, exaltation of heavenly bodies. While there are warnings in Scripture commanding the children of Israel not to worship the hosts of heaven, explicitly naming the sun, moon, and stars, whenever they are actually found having done so, there are many other, much more evil practices connected to their evil worship. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, Unless thou lift up thine eyes on the heaven, 
And when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the hosts of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which Yahweh thy God has divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. Here we see that the other nations were apparently already worshiping the hosts of heaven. Where it is evident that this must be connected to the worship of their false gods and other pagan idols. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, false gods are connected directly to the host of heaven. From verse 2, If there be found any among you within any of thy gates, which Yahweh thy God gives thee, man or woman, and is wrought wickedness in the sight of Yahweh thy God in transgressing his covenant, and is gone and served other gods, and worship them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. This seems to be the case as well in 2 Kings 17 in reference to Israel. I'll read from verse 16. And they left all the commandments of Yahweh their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. It seems to be the case again in 2 Kings 21, verses 3 through 6, in reference to Manasseh, the young king of Judah. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of Yahweh, of which Yahweh said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. And he made his son pass through the fire, and observed times, and used enchantments, and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards, he wrought much wickedness in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger. While the children of Israel were given up to worshiping the hosts of heaven, we have the following scriptures, which testify that they were worshiping devils or satyrs. Leviticus 17.7 And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, that word, Strong's 81.63, is, in my humble opinion, the root word of the Greek word satyr, and also of the Roman word for the god, Saturn, the storm god. The Hebrew word is primarily, is primarily defined as rough. A storm is rough. A goat is rough, too. Esau was rough and hairy, and he lived at Mount Seir, S-E-I-R. The same word translated devils here. Esau may have been the first satyr, right? And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto devils, after whom they have gone a-whoring. That word is satyrs. This shall be a statute forever unto them throughout their generations. The second occurrence, 2 Chronicles chapter 11, in reference to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, verse 15, and he ordained him priests for the high places, and for the devils, 8163, satyrs, and for the calves which he had made. Two additional scriptures attest that the children of Israel were worshipping demons. Deuteronomy 32, 17, 
They sacrificed unto devils. That word is 7,700. Shed. It's a demon, a, an, an inferior spirit being, right? They sacrificed unto devils and not to God, to gods, small g gods, whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Psalm 106 from verse 35. But were mingled among the heathen and learned their works, and they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yet they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. That word is 7,700. It's demons. And shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. The satyr was a half-man, half-goat character, which made its way into the mythology of the Greeks. I believe it came from this very word, and that's why I would say that the devils in these passages, Leviticus 17.7 and 2 Chronicles 11.15, are satyrs. In Hebrew, in Hebrew apocryphal literature, namely in one Enoch, Demons are said to have come from the spirits of bastards. Speaking of the dispersed children of Israel to whom he was delivered to deliver the gospel, Paul of Tarsus said to the Corinthians, I'll quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 through 21. He's speaking of the dispersed children of Israel. Verse 18 makes that very clear. Behold, Israel down through the flesh, or Israel according to the flesh, real Israel. Genetic Israel are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. They weren't offering to pagan deities in the Temple of Jerusalem at this time. Rather, they were pretending to be the people of Yahweh, right? What then do I say? That which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nations, not the Jews, Israel according to the flesh, or the nations, whatever the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now, I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the prince and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the prince and the table of demons. Sounds like two-legged demons. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul mentioned being willing with the humiliation even in the worship of the angels or messengers. Here, he seems to be warning about idolatry and equating it with the worship of certain angels. In Roman paganism, the planets were named after certain of their gods. The name for the original Roman high god, Jove, which I believe came from Yahweh, the Romans being dispersed Israel also, through several permutations. The name for the Roman high god, Jove, with their word for father, which was pater, was eventually elided into the name Jupiter, a contraction of Jove, Pater, Jupiter, Yahweh, Father. 
Jupiter therefore became the name of the largest of their planets. Mars, the god of war. Mercury, the messenger to the underworld. The storm god, Saturn, the love god, Venus, the goddess of, of the brightest planet. All gave their names to those planets recognized by the Romans, who could only see five planets not having telescopes. They're the only planets they could, they could identify. The apostle Jude calls those angels who left their first estate wandering stars. So there are biblical, historical, and biblical connections between false gods, idolatry, fallen angels, stars, and the host of heaven. Now as an aside, the Greek idol Hermes was equivalent to the Roman Mercury. He was the messenger to the gods, the messenger of the gods to Hades specifically. He was also representative of phallic worship. Hermes was often depicted as a head, a man's head on a post with a fully erect phallus in the place where we could expect it to be in relationship to the man's head, right? These depictions of Hermes evoke the Hebrew meaning of the word for the god Kion, mentioned in Amos 5.26, a word which means to stand erect. In Isaiah chapter 34, there was a clear connection made between the enemies of Yahweh and the host of heaven. I will quote from verse 1. Come near, ye nations, to hear, and hearken, ye people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of Yahweh is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has delivered them to the slaughter. Sounds like Revelation 19, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses. Sounds like Ezekiel 38. And the mountains shall be melted with their blood, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down, as the leaf falls off from the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia, and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord, the sword of Yahweh, is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bozrah, and a great slaughter in the land of Edomia. And the unicorn shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and, made their, and their dust made fat with fatness. For it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Verse 4 of chapter Isaiah, uh, of Isaiah chapter 34, need not be interpreted literally. 
For in several other places in Scripture, in prophecy fulfilled, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, of Rome in Revelation chapter 6, for instance, it is evident that the heavenly bodies are often used as allegory for things here on earth. If we interpret verse 4 literally, it does not fit the context of the passages, which both precede and which follow. Here Yahweh promises the destruction of all the nations, ostensibly the non-Israel nations, since Israel is promised preservation forever. Then the hosts of heaven are to be dissolved, and finally the people of his curse shall be destroyed. The host of heaven refers to the offspring of the fallen angels. They will be dissolved when the other nations and the children of Esau are all destroyed. That's what Isaiah chapter 34 is telling us. From R.H. Charles, from his translation of 1 Enoch, chapter 18, from verse 9. And I saw a flaming fire, and beyond these mountains, a region, it is a region at the end of the great earth. There the heavens were completed. And I saw a deep abyss with columns of heavenly fire. And I saw among them columns of fire fall, which were beyond measure alike towards the height and towards the depth. And beyond that abyss, I saw a place which had no firmament, firmament of the heaven above. And no firmly founded earth beneath it. There was no water upon it and no birds. But it was a waste and a horrible place. I saw there seven stars like great burning mountains. And to me, when I inquired regarding them, the angel said, This place is the end of heaven and earth. This has become a prison for the stars and the host of heaven. And the stars which roll over the fire are they which have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh in the beginning of their rising kind after kind because they did not come forth at their appointed times and he was wroth with them and bound them till the time when their guilt should be consummated even for 10,000 years whether you accept the canonicity of the passage or not is immaterial it also equates the host of heaven with those who at the beginning transgressed against Yahweh our God. The fallen angels of Jude and of 2 Peter and of the Revelation, chapter 12. The term host of heaven is used to refer to good angels in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 of an event in the birth of Christ. The term host of heaven can, of course, refer to the heavenly bodies. However, in the Bible, it is evidently a double entendre, which is a word or phrase with two concurrent meanings, where it very often refers to the fallen angels and to all of their offspring, who are the authors of sin and the world's false religions and all of the wicked practices which they include. 
James 2.19. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. Those devils are walking amongst us. As an aside, in Egyptian mythology, there were beings called earth gods, and they had the form of serpents, and that is not a coincidence. Rather, it is very likely representative of those same ancient accounts found in Genesis. I refer to an Egyptian story called The Repulsing of the Dragon. Imagine that. Found on page 12 of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. Acts 7, verse 44. The habitation of witness, or the tabernacle of witness, that's fine, was with our fathers in the desert, just as he, speaking to Moses, prescribed to make it, according to the model which he had seen, which also our fathers who succeeded brought in with Joshua into the possession of the nations, which Yahweh expelled before the face of our fathers until the days of David. I believe I would read that to interpret that they were expelled over that period of time, starting with the Hebrew invasion at the time of Joshua and ending with the days of David, because David did indeed control all of the land promised to Abraham in Genesis from Egypt unto the river Euphrates. The form of the name in Greek, in verse 45, where some, I have some King James Bibles that say Joshua there, and some, I have another King James, I have one that says Joshua and one that says Jesus. So there are evidently some of each. The form of the name in Greek, Jesus, here is the same name for which the King James Version has Jesus, everywhere it refers to Christ. And the King James Version has Jesus here in one of my printings of it, the one from Henderson. Even though it clearly refers to Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, I have another printing of the King James Version of the Bible, and it's from Zondervan, I believe. And no, I'm sorry, it's from Thomas Nelson. And that one says Joshua here. In the Christogenian New Testament, it is Joshua. The correct form I would write is Joshua for the Hebrew. It is Joshua only to distinguish the son of Nun from Joshua Christ. The name Joshua is only an anglicized version of the Hebrew name which we would transliterate as Joshua. Wherever the name Joshua appears in the Septuagint Greek, we see the same form, Jesus, that we see in the Greek of the New Testament. Verse 46, speaking about the nations being expelled before their fathers until the days of David, who found favor before Yahweh, in reference to David, and asked to find a dwelling place in the house of Jacob. And Solomon built a house for him, for God. 
some codices and the majority text upon which the King James is based have to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. For we see also the Septuagint at Psalm 132.5, where it says God of Jacob. The text here agrees with the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Beze, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus being the oldest of the manuscripts in this group. Verse 48, But the highest does not dwell in things made by hand, just as the prophet says. The heaven is for me a throne, and the earth a footstool for my feet. What sort of home will you build for me, says Yahweh? Or where is the place of my resting? Has not my hand made all of these things? Verses 49 and 50 paraphrase Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus saith Yahweh, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? Of course, the temple had been established for at least 300 years when Isaiah wrote. For all those things have my hand made, and all those things have been, saith Yahweh. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. These scriptures pull the institution of the temple out from under the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests. Later, Paul of Tarsus sought to explain the same thing to the Athenians as it is recorded in Acts chapter 17 from verse 24. Yahweh, who made the world and all the things in it, he being prince of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hand. Likewise, Paul says of us, of the children of Israel, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore we know that if perhaps our earthly house of the tabernacle would be destroyed, we have a building from Yahweh, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Stephen, of course, knew that already. Verse 51. Stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts, always do you resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers also you. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they killed those who announced beforehand concerning the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by arrangement of messengers, yet you have not kept it. And hearing these things, their hearts were cut through, and they snarled at him, or literally, they gnashed their teeth at him. When we look into the Old Testament accounts, wherever we can find records of the persecution of the priests and the prophets of Yahweh our God. We find culprits are involved, such as Doug the Edomite, or Jezebel the whore, who were those who would kill them or have them killed. However, Saul the king did hire Doug the Edomite for the service after all the men of Israel in his company refused. Yet the blame here is placed upon the nation since they had all at one time despised the messengers, the prophets of God, and chose to follow the ways of the world, the way of sin. For the same reason, all of Israel was held accountable by Peter for the death of Christ, since they had all allowed the high priest to have him executed, 
even if they did not themselves assent directly, although enough of them certainly had done so, in the crowd outside of the praetorium where Pontius Pilate heard their charges. The devils are never to be blamed for acting in accordance with their nature. But rather, the people of God are to be blamed for their lack of diligence in following the commandments and precepts of Scripture, whereby the devils would not be in a position to do such harm. Christ himself reveals to us the mystery of this iniquity in Luke chapter 11, where he says to the leaders of the people, the Pharisees and the lawyers, Woe to you! because you build the monuments of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are witnesses, and you consent to the works of your fathers, because they killed them, and you build. For this reason also the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, and some of them they shall kill, and they shall persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the society should be required from this race. From the blood of Abel, under the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. Only the race of Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel. And there were many Edomites descended from Cain among the people in leadership of Judea. For which reason the Apostle John warns his readers that if one comes to you and does not have the doctrine of Christ, you must reject that man and not even greet him. Doing that keeps us safe from those demons who consistently manage to infiltrate our numbers, corrupt our society, for which our nations get the blame for their actions as we've seen in the discourses of Peter and here in Stephen. The Jew rules over us because we fail to obey our God. Verse 55. Then being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazing at heaven, he saw the effulgence of Yahweh and Yahshua standing at the right hand of Yahweh, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens have opened, and the Son of Man stands at the right hand of Yahweh. And Stephen's words evoke the words of Christ, here from Luke 22, verse 69, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Verse 57. And crying with a great voice, clasping their ears, then they hastened upon him with one accord. And casting him outside of the city, they stoned him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments by the feet of a young man named Saul. And being stoned, Stephen calling out, then said, Prince Joshua, receive my spirit. And kneeling down, he cried out with a great voice, Prince, you should not account this error to them. And saying this, he fell asleep. He died. The Hebrew method of execution was stoning. The Roman method was crucifixion. Christ had to be crucified in order to fulfill the scripture, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. A passage from Deuteronomy. Stephen's prayer is quite noble, knowing that his Israelite brethren sinned ignorantly, thinking they were defending the proper traditions of their ancestors, he prayed for their acquittal. The words of Christ, John 16, verse 2. They shall put you out of the assembly halls. Yeah, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. So here we have it fulfilled in the stoning of Stephen. The first clause in chapter 8 belongs here, where it says, and Saulus, or Saul, was consenting to his death. So we see that Paul of Tarsus did not take part in the stoning of Stephen, yet he consented to the action. Paul, too, was a traditionalist, and initially he saw the sect of the Nazarenes as a heresy, and he was eager to help punish that heresy and those heretics. From Acts chapter 24, verse 14, long after his conversion to the heresy, he said, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I, the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Yet from this point here in Acts chapter 7, Paul had a long way to go. Now here is where the Paul bashers are history clowns. If Paul and Luke were conspirators, as the Paul bashers claim, Luke, being the author of this account, could have simply omitted this passage. We do not need history clowns in Christian identity. For the next year, or perhaps a year and a half, the greatest part of our efforts in this weekly presentation will focus on a defense and a thorough explanation of the ministry and the epistles of Paul of Tarsus from a purely scriptural and historical point of view. I will be here next week with Acts chapter 8, Yahweh willing, and tomorrow night with Sword Brethren discussing National Socialist German Economic Policy for the third time, part three of a, hopefully a three-part series that I had planned to be a two-part series. Last week was a... Um, a long digression. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.